So good to see all of you. What a great day to be here. How wonderful to be here together. Thank you for coming. How many of you, Karen asked, are here for the very first time? Let's see your hands. Oh, that's wonderful. Good. Thank you so much. I hope this feels like a warm and welcoming place to you. And I hope you join us in a few weeks for the newcomers luncheon. We're so glad to have you. And for those of you coming back from November, it seems like it's been a long time, but we're back. We're back. And it has been a long time. We've had Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, um, all those holidays. I hope your holidays were blessed. I know some of you had a sad and lonely time. A year ago, Christmas, I was working at JPS uh, on Christmas Day, but this Christmas, was, I was surrounded by friends and, and all of my family, and I um, really think it could have been the best Christmas ever. God was, his goodness was so great to me. Um, my mom turned 80 in December, and her desire was that all of her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren would come together in Orlando, Florida, and spend Christmas with her. So that's what we did. So we rented a house, and all my brothers and my sister and her family and all my kids and grandkids and everybody, we were in this house. And it was really great. Now, a few were on the couch and on air mattresses, but it was really a great time. And um, And we went to Disney World and... And had fun there. And uh, I don't know that we had the greatest age span. We might have because we had my 80-year-old mom and my all the way down to my five-month-old granddaughter, Finley. Um, but I do know that we made history because while we were there, Orlando had three days of record-breaking low temperatures <laughs> while we were there. But it was okay. As my little grandson Dylan said, um, Granny, if you're cold, just put on more layers. So he's a firstborn child trying to take care of uh, all of us. But the cold and the crowds did not diminish my joy because as I walked through Disney World holding on to the hand of my little grandson and my mom uh, holding on to my arm with the other, I was overwhelmed with the privilege of being able to celebrate the birth of my mom who gave me life at the same time that we were celebrating the birth of our Savior, who gives me eternal life. It was a blessed and wonderful time. And then I came home, and TCU won the Rose Bowl. And so 2011 started off great. Yeah, clap for that. I've got some purple on today. So, And now we're here with the privilege and the opportunity to study God's Word together. Thank you for choosing to come today. Thank you for choosing to study God's Word. We are beginning today our 16-week study on the book of Isaiah. And we've entitled it, God's Salvation Symphony. And let me tell you why. Isaiah is a broad and expansive, it's deep and it's wide. And it was too big to be called a song. That was our first thought. No, it has to be a symphony. A symphony, and it has these um, themes that run through it like a melody. And it has these dark, low notes of sin and judgment. And then the music gets louder and brighter as it crescendos into the power and the holiness of God. It's a great book. Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation, or God saves. And that pretty much sums up the book of Isaiah, God saves. And so there you have the title, 
God's Salvation Symphony. This morning, I'm going to talk a little bit, um, actually a lot, um, about background material for this book of Isaiah. I think it will help us as we study through Isaiah this semester. And then at the end, we're going to also look at Isaiah chapter 6. So, hang on and let's go. First, I want to answer the question, why study Isaiah? Why should we study this book? Uh, one, there's many, many reasons, and you all probably have your own reasons for wanting to come and study. But one reason is because Isaiah is a very important book. It is quoted more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book. It's a book of prophecy filled with powerful messages for God's people during the time of Isaiah. And these messages apply to our time, to our day, and to our lives as well. We study God's Word not just for knowledge. We study it so that it can become a part of us, so that we can learn more about God and become a part of His story. I love His story. When you write that out, it spells history with another S. And that's what history is. That's what all of this around us is. It's God's story. And we want to become a part of it. And Isaiah has everything in it. It has all the parts of God's story. It tells us that man is sinful. And it tells us that God is holy. And we know that God um, saves us because he loves us. And he wants a relationship with us. He wants us to walk with him. God is faithful. We learn that in Isaiah. He keeps his promises. He is sending a savior. In fact, Isaiah talks more about Jesus than any other book in the Old Testament. He's also just. And he will punish sin. And because of that, we need a savior. And thus we have Jesus told in the book of Isaiah. But God's last word is always one of love and hope and redemption. So there are great words of comfort and hope in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a miniature Bible. Okay, now listen to this. If you've tuned out already, you're going to want to listen to this because this is cool. The Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Old Testament has 39 chapters. The New Testament has 27 chapters. Isaiah can be divided into two main divisions as well. The first division, the first 39 chapters. The second division, chapters 40 through 66, that's 27 chapters. The Old Testament uh, deals with uh, um, Israel's failure to follow God. And those first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal with the rebellion and the sinfulness of God's people. The New Testament opens up with the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. And it ends with Revelation telling us about eternity and the, Old Test- and, um, the new heaven and the new earth. Isaiah chapter 40. Second division opens up with the proclamation and announcement of God's promised Savior. And Isaiah ends those last few chapters with a description of the new heaven and the new earth. Pretty amazing. That alone makes me want to study Isaiah. 
But I have a second reason for studying Isaiah, and that is because we see clearly God's character. And there's two important overriding characteristics of God that we see. The first one is his holiness. God is holy. We see Isaiah calling God the Holy One throughout the book. Every time you read that, you might want to underline Holy One. You see it many times in the first section of Isaiah as well as in the second section. The Holy One. God is holy. Holiness means morally perfect, pure, set apart from all sin. Holiness is complete moral majesty. It is a glorious attribute. It's not some little pale pink church word. It's a grand word. It's a royal blue word. Hear symbols crashing when you think of God's holiness. And the second characteristic we see is love. God is love. God loves mankind, and he loves you, and he loves me individually. Even though God is holy, he desires a relationship with each of us. The more we know that and learn that and accept that and believe it, the more we want to please God. So our response as we study God's attributes is love and worship and a desire to please him. And Isaiah is important because we see so clearly who God is. So who is Isaiah? Isaiah was a man, he was a prophet that wrote the book of Isaiah. He was a prophet of God, considered by most to be the greatest prophet of all. His ministry lasted over 60 years. Only Daniel had a longer ministry than Isaiah. And a prophet was a man or woman, because Deborah was a prophet, a man or woman called by God to speak God's words to his people. And the prophet called by God was filled with his Holy Spirit. And what he said came to pass. Because he spoke the truth. He spoke God's words. Prophets came on the scene in the time of the judges. And they lasted through to Malachi. Uh, That's the last book in the Old Testament. And Malachi was written when the Jewish people returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. So it was over 700 years that we had prophets. And it really wasn't a good thing when we see prophets come on the scene. Because it usually means that God's people have drifted away from him. And they're leading a sinful and prideful and rebellious life. The prophets all had similar messages, and they fall into four main categories. And the first category is the prophets' uh, message was one that reminded them of who God is. And so we see these great attributes of God, reminding the people who God is. The second main message was to call God's people back to God, call them to repentance and to return to God. And if they refused, then there would be judgment um, that resulted in punishment and eventually death. But in the midst of all this judgment, there were always a few faithful, believing people. And so there are words of comfort and hope for them. This is the third category. Beautiful words of comfort and hope. And then the fourth main category was the foretelling of future events. And that's what we think of with prophecy, the foretelling of future events. And those fall into four categories. And this is important. The first is near future events. The second is far distant 
future events, even the end times. Third is the first coming of Christ, and the fourth is the second coming of Christ. And it's this prophecy, this foretelling of future events, that makes it difficult to understand. Because we're reading it and we're trying to figure out, has this already happened? Is it going to happen? Was this something that was future for them, but we've seen it in the past? Or is it the um, future for us? It's the end times? Is this talking about... So don't be confused by this. You can ask yourself, is, is this talking about the first coming of Jesus or the second? And see if that helps. But if you become confused, don't worry. Believe and know this. We may not understand everything in the book of Isaiah, but we're going to understand a great deal. And it's going to be plenty to draw us closer to God. Isaiah was a prophet. He was also royalty. And uh, we know from Isaiah 1.1 that his father was Amos. And Jewish tradition tells us that Amos was the brother of King Amaziah. Now, King Amaziah was the father of King Uzziah. And that's who we're going to talk about in just a little bit. King Uzziah, then, would have been the first cousin of Isaiah. And it's, uh, this makes sense to me, that Isaiah would have been royalty. Because we see Isaiah had easy access to the kings. We see that in uh, chapter 7, verse 3, it tells us that. We see it in other places. He had easy access to the kings. He was also very well educated. Um, we know by reading the book of Isaiah that it is well written. It is a great literary work. It has all kinds of literary styles. It has poetry and song and uh, vivid imagery. It has great prose using legal language and uh, priestly language and complex thoughts mixed with simple thoughts. It's very um, beautifully and well written. We know that Isaiah was married. It tells us that in Isaiah. And he had two sons, at least two sons. And their names um, were very special names. They embodied uh, special aspects of Isaiah's prophecy. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. They're, They're interesting. One is the longest name in the Bible. Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom called Judah. And his long ministry spanned the reign of five kings. Now, this history um, is very important to understanding the book of Isaiah. And so I've included a map and a timeline. And we're going to look first at the timeline. You might have it with you, and we're going to put it up on the screen. And in this timeline, to the left, you see the um, first kings of Israel. Saul was the first king. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He started off good, but then he disobeyed. He turned away from God. And so God chose David to be king. And then David's um, son was Solomon. Now, David was from the tribe of Judah, um, as was his son, Solomon. And after Solomon dies, the kingdom divides. And you see that there. And it divides, and the southern kingdom becomes known as Judah. And that's where Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned. Um, The southern kingdom was made up of the tribe of Judah and also the tribe of Benjamin. But the larger was Judah, so they were called Judah. And Judah is very important. First of all, David is from the tribe of Judah, and all the kings that follow after in the southern kingdom are from the tribe of Judah. And this is because God promised David that the king that was coming, that would reign for eternity, the Messiah, would be from the lineage of David. He would be from the tribe of Judah. And so sure enough, if you look at the lineage of 
Jesus. We can trace it back to David. And so we know Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And that's why he's sometimes called the Lion of Judah. The Lion was the symbol for that tribe. Judah is also important because um, Judah has the capital city, Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is important because that's where the temple is. And in the temple, in the very center, were the Holy of Holies. And there is where the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, resided. So that is important. Now, there were some good kings in uh, Judah. Not all the kings were good. There were some evil. But there were some good kings. Not so in the northern kingdom of Israel. After the kingdom split, there were no good kings in the northern kingdom, and they kept the name Israel. They were all evil. They did not follow after God. Jerusalem had been the capital with the temple, and so they had to pick another capital up in the northern kingdom. And they did not follow God. They were in much worse shape than Judah. And even though God sent prophets to the northern kingdom, they would come under punishment first. And you can see on the timeline that in 722 B.C., the Assyrians took over and destroyed the northern kingdom. They were in worse shape. Now, I say all this because it's a little confusing. When you read Isaiah, you see uh, Israel talked about a great deal and, and judgment and punishment for them. And you might think Israel is God's children. And so that's confusing. So I want to make that distinction here that Israel, the northern kingdom, really disobeyed and did not follow God. It was Judah that had some that followed them. So you can remember it. This is how um, I'm remembering it. It's the southern kingdom. We're down south, so that's good. And then the J's. Judah, Jerusalem, Jesus. Those were all good. And they had some good kings. Remember that. Israel, so when you come to that, now now Israel, here's the other tricky part. Sometimes Israel is mentioned in the book of Isaiah, and it's talking about God's people collectively versus the northern kingdom of Israel. So that can be, especially when it's talking about in the future, in the end times with Israel. So you kind of have to try to see what are we talking about there, and hopefully there will be some of us that can um, make that distinction. But Generally, when you see Israel in the book of Isaiah, it's the northern kingdom. They did not follow God. They had all evil kings. Isaiah comes on the scene. He is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he comes on the scene during the time of King Uzziah. And generally, when we talk about kings, they're going to be the kings of Judah. And you see those at the bottom of your timeline there. Uzziah, these five kings, Uzziah. Um, He was a very good king. We're going to talk about him in a minute. And his son Jotham was a good king. Then after Jotham was Ahaz, and he was a bad king. In a few weeks, Vanita Jones is going to be talking to us about um, Ahaz. Bad king. But then after him, his son Hezekiah was probably the best king up to this point. And then Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, was the worst. In fact, tradition tells us that Manasseh had Isaiah killed by sawing sawing him in two with a wooden saw. So he was bad. He was evil. Yeah, sorry, but I just had to throw that in there in case someone asked you how did Isaiah die. That's what tradition tells us. Okay, so Isaiah comes on the scene here, and um, Judah is in great upheaval. Uh, Political, social, economic upheaval. And when you look at your map, and we're going to look at the map now, you see up in that right-hand corner that Assyria um, is up there, and they are the world power of the time. 
They were cruel and oppressive. And if you remember your history, they had a large army. And they did not believe in God. And they went around conquering all around them, including the northern kingdom of Israel, which I just talked about. You also see on there Israel at the north. You see Judah. The, that's those dotted lines. In the middle of it is a little uh, kingdom of Edom. Uh, keep this map. It's going to be important, especially uh, week four. There's some questions and some things in Isaiah. You'll want to have this map so you can look at it. So God's people in Judah were in the midst of a scary and difficult time. And much of their sin deals with this. It deals with pride and trusting in man and man-made alliances rather than God. A little bit like today. It deals with their rebellion and their empty religious rituals. And we're going to talk a lot about those rituals um, next week. And so God sends Isaiah to give the people this message. Return to God. And it's on your outline and it's all ours to help us remember. Return to God, the Holy One, who loves you. Repent and receive his forgiveness. He is sending the Redeemer to renew and restore and rule forever. Rejoice. It could have been a great message if the people had accepted it, but alas, most of them did not. Most of them did not turn back to God. And because God is holy, holiness is our standard of morality. God requires his people to treat others justly. In fact, in Micah 6, 8, and Micah was another prophet, uh, a contemporary of Isaiah, that was also prophesying to the southern kingdom. That's how much God loved Judah. He had um, more than one prophet calling the people back to himself. And, and Micah's a little, uh, one of the little minor prophets. And in chapter 6, verse 8, Micah says this, What's required of you, O man, but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now this isn't news to um, God's children. This isn't something that God had just made up. This was the way it was from the beginning. You remember when Moses led the people out of Egypt, when God delivered them from slavery, and they went to Mount Sinai, and God said, I am your God, and I'm going to take care of you and prosper you and bless you if you follow me. And he gave them the laws. He said, these laws will set you apart as a holy nation of a holy God so that other nations will look at you and see your God, and they'll believe believe in me as well. This was what they were to do. And they would live being blessed by God. And these were the laws that he gave them. And these were the things he said to act. They boiled down to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with me. And Isaiah comes on the scene to point out to God's people, hey guys, you are not doing that. You are not doing that at all. In fact, you're acting with cruelty towards others. You are prideful and rebellious. You're not walking humbly with God. You're involved in immorality and idolatry. So their faith had degenerated into empty religious rituals. Sin and judgment are ongoing themes of Isaiah. And because judgment is coming, we need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. Man cannot save himself. We need God. So Christ's perfect sacrifice for our sin is foretold and portrayed in the book of Isaiah. All who trust God can be freed from their sin and restored to him. And this includes the Gentile. 
Now, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So that's probably most of us in this room. We're Gentiles. And it's good news because in Isaiah 9, 1, chapter 9, verse 1, you'll want to remember this. We are told that the Gentiles are mentioned with regard to salvation. God has a plan for us as well. So salvation is a theme. And the Messiah, our Jesus Christ, is a theme. And because of Jesus, we have hope. We have hope. God promises comfort and deliverance and restoration in his future kingdom. The Messiah will rule over his faithful followers in the age to come. So there's comfort knowing that God's compassion and forgiveness is available to anyone who believes in him. So no matter how bleak our lives may seem, no matter how bleak the world around us looks, we have hope because we know Jesus is coming again. Now, before we go on to chapter 6, I want to give you two more definitions. And this kind of will be the end of all this background information. Um, One of them... Oh, first, let me tell you this. For those of you that like to know what's going to happen, I'm going to tell you how we're dividing up Isaiah this semester. The first five weeks, we're going to be looking at the first 39 chapters, and we're calling it Judgment. It's kind of the largest part, but it is uh, all the woes. And so I thought five weeks would probably be enough for us. And I'll be teaching that along with Vanita Jones. And then the second... um, section is chapters 40 through 55. We're calling that comfort. That's seven weeks. And Lynn Kitchens, along with Anjanette Walshauser, will be teaching that. And then we have the last um, section, which is four weeks. It's chapters 56 through 66, and it's about hope. And that will be taught by um, Shelley Davis. So let me give you these two definitions. Um, One is the Millennial Kingdom. Some of you, most of you probably know this, but we're going to see this word a lot. The millennial kingdom is the reign of Christ on earth in Jerusalem when he comes back at the end times after the tribulation. Jesus is going to actually reign on earth with his faithful followers. And it will be a great time of peace and joy. And then the second definition I want to give you is remnant. Remnant, you're going to see that um, and we're going to talk about that a lot. Remnant refers to the small but faithful number of God's people preserved. There's always a few faithful ones following God. God always preserves them. So in the midst of judgment, there is always a remnant. So with all that said, let's turn to Isaiah 6 and uh, spend a few minutes looking at this chapter. Isaiah 6. And while you're turning there, let me tell you that um, King Uzziah has been reigning. He's been on the throne. And King Uzziah was a very good king. And so he uh, followed God and he obeyed God and he was very prosperous and very powerful. And you can read more about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 or in 2 Kings 15. In fact, in Chronicles and Kings, you can read about all these kings and things that are going on during Isaiah's day. So he was powerful and he was prosperous. And when he got older, that led to the other P word, pride. And he became prideful and he began to think, hey, I can do what I want. And so he goes into the temple to um, burn some incense, which God had said and consecrated only the priests were to do that. But Uzziah in his pride thought, hey, I can do what I want. And God struck him with leprosy. So Uzziah lives out the last few years of his life as a leper. 
And Isaiah 6.1 opens up and it tells us that this is the year that King Uzziah died. So we know that this is at the end of Uzziah's reign. And we see Isaiah, he's gone to the temple. He's a young man and he's gone there to worship God. And while he's there, he has a vision of God. And it so grabs a hold of him that his life is changed forever. Now, my grandfather used to say that, Debbie, when God grabs a hold of your life, it is changed forever. And that's what happens to, King, to um, Isaiah. His life is changed forever because God grabs a hold of him in this vision. So what I want you to do is to close your eyes while I read these verses in chapter 6. And I want you to um, picture yourself next to Isaiah in the temple. And I want you to picture in your mind what Isaiah saw as I read these verses. So close your eyes as I begin with Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. On the screen there, we have the uh, picture of the painting that Linda Henry painted When she read this, this is how she pictured these verses in uh, chapter 6. It's beautiful and uh, magnificent. And how close is it to what you pictured? It was really very close to what um, I pictured, except that I saw it in a video. And so I could hear, holy, 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 ringing out throughout the temple. Holy, holy, holy. And that is why I wanted to start with chapter 6 of Isaiah today. Because of the holiness of God. We see God's holiness so clearly in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And when we begin to grasp God's holiness, then his judgment is not so hard to understand. Isaiah is worshiping God when the earthly temple changes before his eyes and becomes the throne room of God. And he sees the Lord. He calls out Lord. The word there is Adonai. It means master. And he sees him sitting high and exalted on the throne. And that represents that God is high above all of his creation in heaven and on earth. And it says here that his train filled the temple. Now, a train in those days, the train of your robe, the length of it, um, uh, referred to how much authority you had. So the longer your train, the more authority. 
God's train filled the temple, meaning that God has all authority over heaven and earth. And you see that magnificent train flowing down in the picture. And then in verse 2, we read about the um, seraphs. The seraph, um, that word uh, there in the plural is seraphim. And you might have heard that. It's a category of angels. And they are only uh, in scriptures right here in Isaiah 6. And that word seraph literally means burning one. And I don't know if that's because they looked like they were on fire or maybe they are, they are called that because of their zeal for the Lord. Made me think maybe that's where we get our phrase, she's on fire for the Lord. And they had six wings. One commentary said um, that the two wings covering their eyes uh, represented humility. And the two wings covering their feet represents uh, service. And the two wings used flying uh, represents their ongoing activity in proclaiming God's holiness and glory. Because they were calling out, holy, holy, holy. We've said holiness is purity. It's set apart from sin, and God's holiness is so powerful and so majestic that he alone deserves to be held in awe and reverence. It says the doorposts and the thresholds shook, representing God's power and majesty. And when Isaiah saw this, he is humbled by the realization of his sin, and he calls out in confession, for Isaiah has seen God, And he calls him king, and he calls him the Lord Almighty, that's Yahweh, Sabaoth, and it means the Lord of the heavenly host, the Lord of the angel armies, the majestic and mighty king. What is your response to this vision? When you read this, and when you um, closed your eyes, when you thought about it in your small group, what is your response? Is it confession? Is it awe? Is it praise? Is it humility? You know, oftentimes my picture of God gets so small. And when that happens, I become bigger and bigger. And then my life is a mess and chaos because that is not truth. That's not the proper perspective. But when I go back to the Word of God and I begin to read it, or when I spend time in prayer with God, He becomes who He is, bigger and bigger, and I become smaller. The perspective becomes proper. And as I read this, that's what happens to me. I am humbled by the power and the bigness of God. And I become um, smaller and smaller. So I'm just a dot. And I want to fall before the throne of God in humility, in confession, or praise, or thanksgiving, or service. That is what happens here with Isaiah in confession. And it says that the seraph came with a coal from the altar and he touched the lips of Isaiah and he says that your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now it wasn't the coal that did that. The coal was symbolic of God's cleansing and forgiveness. For us, it's um, a picture of the cross and how the blood of Jesus atones for our sins, for your sins and for my sins. In fact, 1 John 1, 1.9 tells us this. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
You know, Isaiah is an example here for the people of Judah. This is what they needed to do, to remember God's holiness and to recognize their rebelliousness, their sinfulness, and to repent and to call out to God and receive his cleansing and forgiveness. But most were unwilling. They didn't see their spiritual need. After Isaiah receives forgiveness, he is ready for service. He says, send me. God says, who should I send? And he says, send me. He's ready for service. And God gives him the power to do the job, which he explains here in verse 9 and 10. He says, go and tell this people. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their eyes dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. This sounds kind of confusing, but this is what God is saying. He's saying, Isaiah, the bad news is your message, my message through you, is really not going to have much effect. They haven't listened before. They're not going to listen now. They haven't believed. They haven't turned back. They're not going to listen and turn back now. In fact, they're going to become more hardened. They have chosen arrogance and indifference, and judgment is inevitable. I will abandon them to their rebellion and the hardness of their heart. Whoa. Can you imagine what Isaiah is thinking now that he hears this? Oh, my I was hoping that maybe they were going to have the same response I did. One of repentance and confession and falling before God and returning to him. And so he looks at God and he says, asks this question, how long? How long, O oh Lord, am I going to have to give this message? And God answers them with this next verse. Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. This is a picture of Judah after it has been taken into captivity by the Babylonians, which would take place after Isaiah's death. So the answer is all of your life, Isaiah, all of the rest of your life, I want you to tell my people this message. And Isaiah is faithful to do that. In fact, when we get to the end of Isaiah, when we look at chapter 65, he talks about how that had been an obstinate people, how they rejected him and they didn't listen to him, but he had kept on. He was faithful. What an example for us. You know, if I start talking about God, and I hate to admit this, and they look even a little bit weird, I just clam up and turn around. I mean, I I don't persevere in that. And yet, look at Isaiah. 60 years, he talked to these people that where their hearts only got harder. But a few believed. A few turned back. And God gives him this encouragement, this word of hope in verse 13. It says, And though a tenth remains in the land, and it will again be laid waste, but as the terebinth and oak, terebinth is a tree, and oak leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in this land. God is telling him there will be a few 
there will be this remnant of believers that will turn back to me. In fact, King Hezekiah is one of them. We see some great things that happen when King Hezekiah listens to Isaiah. There will be a remnant of believers. And this remnant, small but faithful number of God's people will be preserved. And from them will come others. God's last word is always one of hope. And from Isaiah's response, we can get some examples for our own life. I thought about this for my life. One, remembering the holiness of God can lead to humility and confession and service and praise. Two, God will give us the power to do his work if we are willing. If we are willing, he will give us the power to do it. Three, and this I think is important, many will not understand or be drawn to God, but some will. Some will, and so I must be faithful, regardless of how they look at me, to proclaim the love and the goodness and the message of God. Some will be drawn to God. One commentary I read said that all of Isaiah is a vision. But don't try to grasp the vision. Let the vision grasp you. Kind of like in the words of my grandfather, let God really get a hold of your life. And that is my prayer for us as we study Isaiah these next 16 weeks, that God really gets a hold of our lives. Let's pray. Oh, holy God. You are holy and mighty and powerful and just and faithful. And God, you are loving. And you want a relationship with us and how grateful I am. Father, how that humbles me and how I call out to you in confession and in thanksgiving that you love me. Father, thank you for these women that have come to study your word. And I pray, Father, that as we open up Isaiah, that you will open up our hearts and our minds, that we will um, understand your words, that they will draw us closer and closer to you. Father, I pray that you would grab hold of our lives, that we might be changed. Father, we love you. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.